And we're live. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, all. Welcome. Monday night generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And it's raining here, Jen. Like it a, cons- is. a consistent rain, which is kind of a not a common thing in Florida, especially nowadays. How is everything no. in Asheville? It's lovely. It, you know, look, it rains here too, but even the rain is nicer here. It'll rain and then it'll let up a bit. It rains like normal, not like Florida monsoon raining. Well, so. I, it's not even monsoon raining, although, you know, we'll get your, you know, your occasional moment. But it's kind of interesting how in Florida it rains where, you know, you'll have, you know, one part of the sky look really bad, almost like, you know, like a tornado would touch down. And then you look in another place and... It's like, oh, the sun's over there. So it's it's unique. But today's been fairly consistent with rain. But Lord knows we need it. Uh, <laughs> so what's going if on? Only in the- we were, if only we were harvesting rainwater. Yeah, you know, uh, we heard from a number of people that that is actually a really good idea. We've been getting some feedback consistently saying, yeah, you know, harvesting rainwater would be a great idea. Um, it wasn't my idea, people. That's the thing. <laughs> it wasn't my idea. It's a g- <laughs> yeah, it's no, very no. common sense. Like, it's weird that we don't do that. Like, why are all new buildings not built that way, especially ones that are municipal? Well, again, what would be the biggest reason why we're not allowed to do municipal rainwater? What, what's the justification behind something like that? Like, what um, would be that reason? I'm sure it's somebody's corruption somewhere. Well... Uh, let me see. Uh, give me one second. Like if people collect rainwater and start doing that, oh my God. They won't let us grow our own plants or harvest rainwater. <clears throat> so I assume you are aware of what's been going on. I know we briefly um, touched upon it, but of course, uh, and we'll be talking about it with our wonderful guest, John Nichols around a little after 8.30. Uh, <clears throat> so the Wisconsin Supreme Court will no longer permit um, you to be able to vote uh, the drop box. By, by drop boxes, which, um, hey, Mal, uh, you know, again, I guess it depends on what your perspective is about it, but the truth is, uh, do we really want to make voting harder than it already is? It's already... <laughs> <clears throat> more difficult do. enough than it needs to be. Um, at, least with the, at least with the GOP, you know what you're getting. You know you're going to get a group, a, a party that is going to do everything in their capacity to make voting more difficult. That is their goal. Yeah. So John is, is he in Wisconsin? So I was going to say, this seems yes. like, you know, the yeah. case for Harvey K. Harvey as well. Well, I reached out to John because we've had, uh, I try to, you know, mix it up with our guests, uh, even though Harvey is uh, Harvey should be like um, trying to think of like the right way to describe this. Uh, he's he's like a resident of the he show. Should be. Yeah. I, he's just, he's like, you know, Jordan, <laughs> Grumbine, uh, our friend Osiris from Stuck in the Middle. You know, we have our regulars that, you know, basically they're like, hey, I want to come on the podcast. Like, OK, you're allowed yeah. on. Well, it's just people that are just really good to speak with and are, you know, it's just nice, like cross pollinating with certain people. 
I think we're kind of getting the scoop on this, and I think it'll be a very important conversation with John when he comes on, because I don't think people really understand just uh, how significant uh, a decision this was by the Wisconsin Supreme Court and what that is going to mean going forward in a lot of places. Um, These are... I mean, I, I think the best way to describe it is uh, you're, you're giving um, a massive lifeline to Trump's never ending pursuit of trying to convince himself that he was cheated out of the presidency in 2020. Mm-hmm. And so doing this, um, you know, again, is just going to add to that cannon fodder of him basically saying, you see, I was totally cheated. You totally should throw out those ballots. And the truth is, if you do not count the votes that came via ballot drop box, Trump would win Wisconsin. So that's what he's going to say. Um, he's going to say that and he's not going to stop. And he's just such a, he is such a narcissist of like the highest level. And he's a man baby. Try having man baby and narcissist rolled into one and somebody who was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple to get there. It, it's it's so bad. It It, it really is. Yeah, I've I've met a lot of man babies in my life, but um, he's pretty um, he's pretty insufferable, you know. Like I'm I, I I'm so tired of hearing about him. I I don't, I'm just so tired of hearing about him. I want him to go away, and not because I find him as offensive as everyone else, but because I'm sick of hearing everyone else complaining about him all the time. Yeah, unfortunately, um, the problem with that predicament leads us to a bigger issue here. And one of the main reasons why Trump isn't going anywhere is because he's too good for business. And one of the reasons why I think a lot of people are going to welcome him back, uh, I really do think that a lot of it just has to do with, uh, you know, if he's on TV, if he's doing something, um, even if it is borderline catastrophic, people are like, well, you know, it sells. You know, it's kind of like in Don't Look Up. Yeah, I know the ride, the meteor is coming, but, you know, there's a lot of minerals on that meteor that we could harvest for a lot of money. And I, I just, I kind of get that impression. They're like, yeah, I know Trump's bad, but man, is he great for ratings. I can't wait to have him back. You know? Well, we've actually seen that. I mean, we remember that from in the original race. Like that was, I mean, that was, who was it? Who was cut? Was it Les Moonves? Who was it? Yeah. Les Moonves is the one. Les Moonves, Mr. Sexual Harasser and Possible Assaulter as well. uh, You know, out there saying, hey, Trump may be bad for the country, but he's great for us because you guys live in a proverbial bubble where the only thing that matters is the bottom line. You are capitalism of the worst kind. And so what else is going on besides Wisconsin losing their drop boxes? Well, there's always a wonderful amount of stuff going on. Of course, uh, I was at the I was at a very nice uh, luncheon the other day for the Haitian Democratic Club. Um, you know, again, the thing here in Broward is that you get so many people that are running for office, and you know, you're not really bringing in a whole bunch of uh, new people. And you know, it's always interesting when you get like uh, you know the local people who you know don't want to hear the truth. We really are stuck in. Uh, in a part of the state that doesn't have um, as flexible, uh, you know, opinions when it comes to everything that's going on right now. And we really need a lot more of that. And we need the the type of, and again, it's not like there aren't good people that are there, but as 
Jen, as you always like to point out, it's once you start going to a lot of these events, you just see the same people every time, no matter what. It's not, there's not new people coming in. And and that may be true. And they like it that way. And they like it that way. And they want to keep their little fiefdom. They don't want to cross over and make build bridges and work with people that might feel different things on different issues. They don't want to do any of that. These people like to sit in an echo chamber and pat each other on the back for a job well done. It's what like job, political the political version of the Oscars. The question becomes, what job well done? Because right now we are really searching for more, better, stronger leaders, especially down here in the Miami Fort Lauderdale metro area. And one of those people happens to be a good friend that you and I have both known for a while. I in particular have known for about, uh, it's been about six, six years now. Um, he's a former law enforcement officer. He's a former state house representative of Florida House District 116, I believe it was. And now he is running for the U.S. Congress in Florida's 26th congressional district. And as you can imagine, he's taken a break from doing Lord knows how many different things you have to do on the daily when you're running for U.S. Congress, including having to call people to support him financially, because Lord knows the Democratic Party's not doing enough to help him. And that is a shame because he is a wonderful candidate, a wonderful former representative and an even more wonderful person. Robert Asensio, welcome to Generational Change. Hey, guys. Hi. Sorry it took me so long to log on. Uh, Murphy's Law, right? No, I'm it's all computers good. And, anyway, but I'm here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Peter. How are it's you guys pleasure. doing? Yeah. Hi. Well, I don't think we've met. It's nice to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. Likely. No, good Uh-oh. stuff. Good stuff. Okay. You know, anybody that tries to create change is uh, in my book. You got a couple checks in your favor. Well, all three of us think very highly of a gentleman by the name of Fred Frost. So we have that uh, F and Fred Frost. We have that, Frost. We have that. We have that wonderful connection. But Rob, give everybody a quick backstory. Obviously, you know, you've had a career in law enforcement. You did get elected into the Florida State House in 2016. And obviously now, you know, we know how things are politically in Miami. Uh, change is absolutely necessary. And the fact that you are willing to run for the United States Congress in District 26, which covers a lot of territory. Uh, hats off to you for doing that first and foremost. But Please introduce yourself to the audience and, uh, you know, what brought you to this point to run for Congress? Sure. So it's always a pleasure to be with you, Peter and, and, and Jennifer. Well, Jen, right? Yeah. Is it Jennifer or Jennifer? Jen? You, you could, whichever. It's all good. <laughs> well, how about family? Yeah. That's, that's, Italian, that's Italian right there. How about that? So, yeah. so here, here's a little bit about me. Look, I'm, uh, I'm about as working class as they come, man. Um, Originally from New York, born in New York, Brooklyn, New York, uh, Williamsburg, when it was really, really bad. Not the gentrified Brooklyn that you have now. Uh, Moved to Puerto Rico as a kid, moved to South Florida in 1977, bounced around and, you know, I've been on my own since I was 15 years old, shortly after coming to Miami, joined the military um, in the, I think it was like 1982. Uh, Miami was really in a unique place. There was a lot of drugs and a lot of hardship in Miami. Miami was beginning to emerge during the heyday of the cocaine era. 
Um, I knew I didn't want to go to jail. I knew I wanted more into life, but I, I had quit high school because I had to go and work on my own. Imagine I was 15 years old. So anyway, I joined the military, joined the reserves, had a stellar opportunity of joining the special operations unit. And then from there, um, a lot of people took me under their wings, a lot of good people. So I had an opportunity to work with the best this country has to offer. Gave me a different perspective of, you know, dealing with people on the street. Um, Anyway, so so I come out of the military, and what am I going to do, right? I come out of the military, um, spent although I was a reservist, I spent some good time in active duty. You know, you come out, you're working with the best, and then the reality hits you. Try to find a job. Jobs are sparse. Uh, my marketable, uh, my marketability wasn't the best. Um, I already had, you know, some college behind me at that point. Completed high school in the military, and I already had some college behind me. But the point being is that unless I was going in drugs into drugs, dealing or, or selling. There really weren't that many opportunities for me. And I found myself living in a car and I was like, nah, man, I want more out of life. So um, by chance, I met some people. I was able to join the uh, police force. And I spent 26 years of my life in, in police work, work from the streets of Miami all the way up through um, commander, ran the police agency for a little bit. But the most important piece was that I ran public corruption units amongst other units and the public corruption unit always stuck with me. Right. So you, you figure why do people who are given the, you know, the highest trust that I can consider that can be conceived upon someone, the trust of the public, why do they violate the trust? Right. And so we made it a, like a point after every investigation to do post analysis, post investigative analysis of the, of the individuals involved, right. To see what we can learn how to better deal with people in the future, how to better deal, maybe even prevent some crimes or better detect some criminals that under the white collar, you know, um, category, they're committing some serious freaking crimes that are hurting our community and stealing quite a bit of money of our money, tax dollar dollars. And the one thing that we found in common was that, man, there were a lot of elected officials and appointed public officials that were just way out of their league. They were ill-prepared for the jobs that they were holding and the positions they were holding. And therefore, they had really crappy policies. Or I'm going to be honest. I'm going to say they had shitty policies, man. They were responsible for really committing some serious heartaches. So fast forward, um, I get closer to retirement. I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my life? You know, I worked real hard for a pension. And then it became fashionable in 2010, <clears throat> just before I retired, to go after the public sector workers. Excuse me, I need to get a drink of water. Mm. But they begin to scapegoat the public sector workers, scapegoat our pensions as if we were the cause of the economy going bad in 2009, 2007. And they put a lot of teachers, you know, at in a position where they weren't sure if they were going to be able to have a retirement. They the first time in this country's history we saw police officers and firefighters across the country being laid off, teachers being starting to be laid off. Uh, public pensions going par- uh, private. So we began, I created a small organization called Florida Public Employees to basically advocate, well, to see, first of all, if other public sector workers felt like I was, you know, they were tired of these crappy politicians crapping on us, right? Rick Scott dumped on us. He tried to privatize a public pension that was one of the strongest pensions in the country. So this public, Florida Public Employees was conceived, the name was conceived over a couple beers and a cigar. And a lot of frustration, right? And then we find out that we're advocating for about a little over a million public sector workers. At one point, we had over 700,000 people come to view our website 
it was a real crappy website. It was a static page. It was like something that, man, left a lot to be desired. But the point being and the takeaway was that a lot of people were feeling frustrated. And they, like me, they were feeling like the government was leaving behind. So a little bit of experience I have with public sector workers, the little experience I had with, with public you know, elected officials and, and the experience that I had with government, I thought, let me go talk to my legislator, Frank Artiles. Do you guys remember Frank Artiles? I do. Yeah. So he, at the time, had filed a very, very egregious bill, which was a transgender bathroom bill, right? He wanted to police people for going to the bathroom. And and it was a really, really crappy bill all the way around. It not only put people, in, you know, marginalized or stigmatized people who have already been marginalized, a community that, that instead of, you know, um, providing better resources to, they wanted to victim, you know, literally victimize these people by holding them like accountable to the law. And it, and it was, it was more. He did not quite understand the damage that he was causing. And at that point, and the other some choice comments that came out of his mouth about, you know, the economy and about people as a whole. I was like, man, this guy represented me. I, I want to take him out. And I filed to run against Frank Artiles. And, you know, I'm used to being the underdog. And I get tired of people dumping on me and I want to fight back because you know what? It's not their right to really screw over people. I know what it is to be living in a car. I know what it is to be dead ass broke. I also know what it is to do fairly well. So luck is as luck would have it. He jumps out of that race, jumps into Senate, but then David Rivera jumps into the race. You guys remember David Rivera? Mm, he was bit. a congressman. Um, in one cycle, right? In one two-year uh, period, he earned the distinction of being the most corrupt, earning the title of being one of the most corrupt um, congressmen in the history of Congress. And that's not me saying it's documented. Look it up. You can Google it, fact check it. It's there. So David Rivera and company, um, they start coming after me. And I realized, oh man, I must be, you know, becoming a candidate. You know, I must be becoming a threat to them because I couldn't raise a dime at the time. Nobody would look at me. It was a race and everybody said we couldn't win. It was a race that, that um, the register, there was, it was, I think it was like a five plus R registration. Um, and the Dems were underperforming. It was a very, very heavily Hispanic Cuban populated community that very much leaned Republican. Well, I went out and started knocking on doors. And in the first month, I knocked on about 2,000 doors. Very non-scientific. I just started knocking on doors. Then I tar started targeting the doors. Then I started talking to people. And I realized the more I spoke with people, the more they liked what I was saying. Because I wasn't talking about party line issues. I was talking about real life, you know, asking and trying to, to find solutions to everyday issues that were affecting us. Economics, you know, security, um, jobs. And... And we won the race. At the end there, before, the, like you said, the party wasn't backing me. And then all of a sudden, everybody and their mother came to, to, to the race because they want to go with a winner. But we had done all the work. So we won those seat. Spent two years in Tallahassee. And I became the number one target of Tallahassee. And they came and, they, and we lost the seat. We won the yeah. seat that we should have never won and lost the seat we should have never lost. So here we are. And that's what ends up becoming a really big point of contention in politics, of course, is uh, corporate special interest money. And there is never a shortage of it, especially in Miami. Uh, what is the current status of the race? Um, and forgive me, I think this is uh, this is going to be District 28, correct? No that's longer correct. 26? Okay. Yeah. And 
you know, obviously Mayor Jimenez, now Congressman Jimenez, he's been uh, he's been a fixture in Miami for a long time. Uh, the thing that's interesting about this particular race, and I don't know how much the district lines have actually changed. I don't believe they changed significantly in Miami, but this was a plus one D district. And it seems like there's not really the effort that's being put in to a seat that technically should be blue, uh, but is basically just being thrown by the wayside. And we see that a lot in party politics, particularly the Florida Democratic Party, where there's a lot of unchallenged seats, much less ones that, you know, in this case, uh, despite what people think, especially in lieu of where the numbers are right now, uh, just being able to have uh, a competitive seat makes it much more beneficial, especially to candidates who may be running for state house. So what is the current status of the race as it pertains to, you know, fundraising, party support, ground game, all of that stuff? Yeah, so so I did not go into my background to embellish and, you know, to talk about me, glorify me. I, I went into my background to point a picture, paint to a picture, which brings us to the point of the conversation and to your question, right? The status of the race. Well, right now there's six people running in this race. There are three Republicans, two Democrats, and a write-in candidate, okay? I have a primary. It seems like the, from what I understand, the other Democrat in the race, apparently he's put his name on the, on, on the ballot a couple cycles before. I don't know. I, I don't know the guy. As a matter of fact, the media has been asking me, where is he? If I know the guy, if they can find him, because nobody can find him. But regardless, regardless, the reason why I run, and this is the most important thing, and I'll answer the other questions because I wanted to point out something that's very, very important now. Over the last six years, but mainly the four years prior that this that the former administration was in office, we saw an attack on our system of democracy. Now, I know that we don't have a perfect democracy, but whenever you have an administration, the president of the United States doing everything he can to subvert our system of democracy, our system of vote, disparaging and demarginalizing and further suppressing uh, individuals. We draw exception to that. So Jimenez, who is the, the, the incumbent, he's the current sitting congressman. When he was in, as, as a former mayor of Miami-Dade County, he was a mayor for 10 years. And he got elected on, on, on the premise of being or the promise of being a, a moderate, working with all. But we saw as he began to work through his tenure in the county government that he became more of an elitist and more of a one-party guy, although he preached moderate, being a moderate. And in his farewell speech, he speaks about his being moderate and working across the aisle. But what does he do when he gets to Congress? Well, we have January 6th, you know, insurrection in the Capitol. And the first act that he takes, it's votes against the certification of the election. Now, party, si party ideology aside, what does that mean to me? I'm a patriot. I've served in the military. I have served on the street. I know what it is to bleed for a country and serve people. But I didn't care who, what race, what party lines, what ideology they belong to, what sexual, you know, um, you know, orientation they were of. I just know that we went to serve. And to have a guy that votes against certifying the election, that means that he is voting against, once again, he did it once in the county. 
He votes against you and my votes. One of the most precious rights that we have in this country. John Lewis couldn't have said it any better in 1965. It is the most powerful nonviolent change agent that we have in this country. But here's the thing. We can lose it. Because if we don't use it, it's going to be taken away. And that's what we see right now. So the status of the race is my opponent votes to subvert democracy. That vote that I mentioned and so many others that I can point to. And I'm fighting to defend democracy and ensure that we have a better country and ensure that that party line crap, whether it's on the Democrat or Republican side, you have somebody who goes to Congress that's going to stand up for the issues and is going to fight for people's issues. Look, it's no secret people are hurting, right? We know that the economy is, 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 you know, the inflationary cost is hurting, has hurt many people. But rather than, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to, excuse me for cursing, but I'm going to bit, and rather than bitch, than him bitch and complain about how bad the administration is, why doesn't he introduce legislation to try to fix the problem? He has sure. not. And that's the problem we have, that people who get elected to office often, it's easier for them to freaking lay back and complain about everything that's wrong in the world than to freaking work and try to make a change. I know if I get to Congress, I'm not going to change Congress. I'm not going to correct all the ills of Congress. But you know you're going to have somebody go to Congress that's going to fight. Yeah. We always said that, too. I always said that when we were canvassing and talking to people. (laughs) You know, it's amazing that people don't expect you to solve all the problems. They just expect you to speak up, fight for them, and be transparent. And if you can do that, then people will support it, even when they know that you're just one cog in the machine that is still not really where we would like it to be in terms of progress. Absolutely, man. I mean, let, let's let's talk about the issues, right? You asked me about the state of the race. So, so we haven't. So we have about, you know, again, three Republicans. They have their primary. I'm sure Carlos Jimenez is going to come out. The, he's going to prevail there. Then I'm sure I'm going to prevail in in the primary. So it's going to be the two of us, mano mano, if you will. They're going to talk the crap, right? They're going to talk about the social is, and they're going to label me. I think I think the 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 route that they have to attack me will be, and I, and I say they because it's more than Carlos, right? Because I know the party doesn't want to lose the seat. So, so what they're going to try to do is they're going to time me to all the criticisms of the good and the bad, but mainly the bad that this administration has endured, right? Or has come out of the administration as they're painting it, or as, you know, they're, they're arguably... There's some things that the positions that the administration has taken that are not the best. So they're going to try to paint me as a Biden Pelosi lover. They can't paint me as a, as a commie. They can't paint me as a socialist. And they can't paint me as a guy that's not going to fight the public for the public. So that's what we're going to have in the coming months. This probably will be one of the most contested. Well, it has the possibility of becoming one of the most contested fights in the country, not because I think, but let's look at this. We know this this, this, this seat has flopped, has flip-flopped. It's gone from, let's go back to David Rivera. David Rivera was, was the congressman. Then Joe Garcia became the congressman. 
It went from Republican to Democrat. Then Carlos Cudabello had it for two cycles. It was a Republican. Then Debbie McCarcel defeated him. Debbie McCarcel Powell in 2018. And then Carlos Jimenez defeated her. It's a district that Andrew Gillum in 2018, during the midterm, won by six points. It's also a district that Donald Trump won by eight points in 2020 during the presidential. So it is competitive. And you mentioned about the, the district being before like a plus R plus one. Well, now I'm sorry, D plus one. Now it's it's 33% Republican, 32% Democrat of the registered voters, but 35% MPA and independent. And those MPAs and independents certainly break with people who are more pragmatic and they want solution-based. Yeah. So again, it's not what I'm thinking. It's what the, you know, what, what the, what the numbers and the stats are trending. We have a very, very competitive race. So if we look at the races across the country for the Democrats, as the Democrats begin to lose ground in, in the U S house, they got to turn to seats like this. And although right now, quite honest with you, I really don't want that much attention on what we're doing because we just focus nose to the grind. Our objective is get past the primary and get into the general. And then we build capacity beyond the, you know, expand, explode the capacity. But, so how are you being treated? How, how are you being treated by your local party down there? Well, everybody likes me <laughs> or outwardly. I, I get treated well. You know, I can't say that I'm being ignored. Because honestly, I think that the issue, look, both parties are a disaster, okay? I, th- I think we can agree with that. And, and maybe that's the wrong descriptor, but they leave a lot to be desired. If they were optimal and they were inspiring people, we wouldn't have the underperformance when it comes to voters coming out to vote. And we would not have so many people leaving the Democrat Party and registering MPA, independent, and sometimes Republican. Although, you know, nowadays to become a Republican, you gotta you gotta like really think about it, man. So uh uh-huh, go ahead. You were gonna ask something? I was just gonna say, I think that um, we need more representation, more than ever, of people who are not bought and paid for by the system that have experience outside of government and re- recognize, like you said, uh, how to be a person of by and for the people, which is sort of a lost art these days. You know, we've gotten to the point now where we really, there is this stigma that's associated with both parties. And that's why so many people are flocking towards an independent uh, voter registration. The problem with that is that because of the way the electoral system is set up, you really do set yourself um, backwards. You're, You're not finding yourself having an advantage by doing just that. And I think that that's why it's important to focus more on the candidate in question than to be focusing necessarily on the party. If people like you and they like what you have to say and and what it is you're selling, if you will, and how you're going to represent the people, there are enough people that are still willing to overlook the party line to basically say, I like this person, I'm going to vote for them. And because of the fact that this is one of the most competitive districts in the country, I think is what's going to make it uh, very interesting. Um, It's the calm before the storm. We are way out from electoral season at the moment, but we'll be there in just a few months. Once we get to the beginning of October, 
everything becomes sort of a central focus. And this race will definitely garner a lot of attention. So with that said, Robert, how can people get involved if they want to check out your campaign? What is your website? Uh, anything we could do to post to let people know uh, that if they would like to get involved, they'll have a chance to do so. Absolutely. So the first thing is you're welcome to call me, right? My, my cell phone works very well. People are welcome to call me, 305-335-7759. If I don't get to you immediately, it's obviously because the phone's blowing up and I'm really working the phones these days. I'm, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on the phone trying to raise money. Um, the other thing is, you know, you can go, please check out my landing page because we call it a landing page right now because to go into an elaborate uh, uh, website, that's going to come. But as we get, I've been in the race three and a half weeks since, since the deadline of filing. I jumped in the day of filing. So it's been nonstop. The website is AscensiaForCongress.com. Real simple. A-S-E-N-C-I-O for Congress. Dot com And the word is for, F-O-R. So uh, that's the first thing, please. Second thing is, you know, for those of you that are out here in, in the district, I would really encourage you to do a comparison. Google, Google the, the current representative, you know, and see if that's what you want. Look, from day one, from day one, I want to make it really, really clear. We're working on introducing policy. Now, maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I think that if I'm going to run, I have to start thinking beyond just trying to get elected, right? I have to start thinking of what's the work that we're going to do when we get there. And right now, one of the most pressing issues for people in, in not just in Dade County and Florida, but across the country, is that most people are underemployed and underpaid. So we have to make sure that we thread the needle we provide opportunities for people to, you know, grow career-wise, workforce development, but at the same time, figure out how to be able to grow those emerging industries, transition the old industries into the new industries, to be able to provide people better paying career jobs. It sucks that people have to leave South Florida or Florida, well, South Florida because they can't freaking afford to live down here. It sucks that we have our children that go to school they encourage these, you know, they do what we're telling them to do. Good educated. I believe in education, higher level education. I have degrees. As a matter of fact, I just finished paying off my student loans. Okay. But it stinks that they're going to go through all that sacrifice and they cannot stay where they grew up. We can do better than that. So the first day we get there to the Congress, one of the first bills we're going to introduce, it's going to be ready to go. And that's going to be a first uh, a workforce development program that builds around economic development, that helps people when it comes to apprenticeship programs, from certification all the way up to the highest level degrees, PhD level, and beyond in emerging industries. I know that because we already worked with it in the house. We already worked with aerospace and emerging industries, and they're just willing and waiting for champion to be able to sell this. So that's one of the pieces we're going to be working on. The other thing is. You know, under the American Rescue Plan, they um, there's 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 a, some monies that was that was sent to the state of Florida for homeowners assistance and rentals assistance that the state has. Where as far as the homeowners, they were they're about to lose their money because I mean their homes because they lost they lost money over economics during COVID. 
they can they can qualify for up to fifty thousand dollars per household to help them get out of their debt, get help them get out of their rears. That's not a giveaway. That's your tax dollars. Yet yeah. our congressman will not do anything to promote that. So I want to make sure we promote those those programs and make sure that the programs that aren't working, we try to get them to work. Robert, needless to say, it's a real pleasure to have you on. And you're right. Um, we definitely need to be uh, we need to be talking about the economic issues that are particularly affecting South Florida that we are not doing. Uh, as of right now, again, uh, we have a Congress that is shiftless and corrupt. And of course, uh, Representative Jimenez is an example of uh, another do nothing representative who is just there for a career. Uh, we know that um, that's politics one on one in many ways. So with that said, uh, it's been a real pleasure and we are definitely looking forward to supporting your efforts. Um, needless to say, uh, you've been a really strong pillar down here in South Florida. There's not a lot of them, but you're one of them. And, you know, we certainly wish you nothing but the best. And we'll definitely be seeing you out there on the trail and be giving you a hand. And thanks so much for coming on this evening. Thank you. Join us for this ride. Come join us for this ride. And thank you for the opportunity of being here. And and it's a pleasure to speak with you guys. Absolutely, brother. We'll be in touch. So as we know, again, as we talk about, yeah, it's true. Uh, Cost of living in South Florida, uh, everything. It's 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 very expensive to buy houses that are going to look really good as coral reefs. That's what I'm telling you. Well, yeah, I know John will get a kick out of that one. Uh, and it's true. Uh, we, we are having a serious problem with uh, recognizing that there is a significant portion, particularly of Miami-Dade County, that is not going to be habitable for much longer. I know everyone thinks, ah, yeah, 10 years, 20 years, whatever. No, actually, it's going to be sooner than you think, because a lot of these uh, places that are along the coastlines, um, you know, their foundations are probably not uh, holding up too well. But We've got many more pressing issues to deal with, including a very significant uh, decision by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And who better to discuss this than Wisconsin's own John Nichols of the nation? Welcome back, as always, to Generational Change. Great to be with both of you. It's a pleasure. Hi, John. So for anybody who doesn't remember, the last time John was on, it was to discuss the book uh, Coronavirus, Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, which was really fun in a very sad and demented kind of way. I only write books that lead to sad and demented conversations. Uh, Wasn't that all academia wants to do is talk about the depressing parts of society? We've got. But I'm not. I'm not in academia. So actually, Mm -hmm. in reality, um, you know, I I, I always set out to write hopeful books, Uh, but the the reality is that um, too often they tend to be prescient, Uh, and that was certainly true with the last book, the Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, which came out a couple years ago. And arguing that the Democratic Party always snatches uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. And I think we're watching it happen right now. So there you have it. When you see those things happen, though, it's hard. How do you not get to where we just think it's intentional and that they're just the allocated Nick resistance? Because mm-hmm. when you say that, it's really true. It, it, but I, I find it very hard to believe that the people in leadership of the Democratic Party, the people in charge, are that stupid or ignorant. So therefore it must be intentional. Jen, Jen, Jen. Um, Sadly, your respect for the Democratic Party, which is far greater than my own, um, uh, 
lead you to imagine that the people who are in charge are competent. Okay. Uh, and I, I, I wish I could tell you it was a conspiracy because it would be so encouraging. Um, you know, because they're, they're strategizing, they're plotting and stuff like that. And certainly there are bad players, without a doubt. But I think the thing you need to understand is um, that unlike the Republican Party, which long ago decided to jettison morality and just go for a very, you know, core strategy at a constant basis uh, and and has succeeded quite well with that. The Democrats still tell themselves that they are, um, you know, good folks trying to do good things. And uh, and I think many of them really believe it. I, I have no doubt of that. But the problem is they have never as a party, at least not in the modern era, had the drive to achieve the things that they say they want to achieve. They, they don't put the, the strategies together. They don't put the, the energy together. And here's why. They rely for their funding on billionaires, multinational corporations, connected interests. And so uh, you always have this disconnect there where they're like, they're like, oh, we want to do these great things. But, oh, that could, that could make it harder for us to raise the money we want to raise. That could make it maybe we won't win if we stand for something principled. The end result is they constantly talk themselves out of doing the right thing. Now, at some point that itself, maybe that becomes immoral. Right. You can say if you do that so often, it becomes indefensible. But uh, I really have, as somebody who's watched it for a very long time, become convinced that it is not a conspiracy of, of bad people. It is a it is a endeavor of incompetence. Why, why have they been able to get away with it for so long? And do you feel that we may be turning a corner? Because I'm even something as simple as, uh, you know, again, we're only where we are. Uh, we're only about 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops outside of Parkland. And, you know, what obviously happened this afternoon with Manuel uh, Oliver, um, who lost his son in uh, the massacre, you know, was basically telling the president to, you know, step the hell up already. And, you know, most people agree with him, but there's still obviously that circle of people who are like, oh, don't yell at the president. He's doing all he can. Uh, where do you see it going right now? Because obviously we know it's not going to be pretty in the midterms, but I'm wondering if we are turning a corner in terms of maybe awakening to the reality of where the Democratic Party stands and how they manipulate voters based on the idea that, well, if you don't vote for us, no matter how terrible we are, you get the GOP. That's uh, yeah, I. I actually think we turned the corner in 2016. Um, it's just, this is a very hard racetrack and, and the, tur the turn takes a long time. Uh, but I have absolutely no doubt that uh, actually, to be honest, even in the summer of 2015, as Bernie Sanders started appearing at rallies uh, where they had, I'll give you, I'll tell you a story that Bernie told me. Um, he was, he and one aide were up in Minneapolis back in June of 2015. And they were driving around. They were a little bit lost trying to find the rally that they had organized and or that somebody had organized for him. And uh, his aide said, oh, wow, um, it looks like there's some rock concert or something here because there's a whole bunch of young people lined up outside. <laughs> and maybe we could ask one of them where this address is. So they pull over and they say, and they literally lean out the window and say, uh, is, you know, we're, we're trying to find an event where Bernie Sanders is and and the people all look like and they're all like excited because they said, we're in line for your event. 
And, <laughs> and what Senator said there was that it was in that instant that he realized this was a different campaign than the one that, you know, he had set out to run, right? He had hoped for all sorts of great stuff, but suddenly thousands, then tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of people were literally showing up and they were young, they were uh, energetic, they were ready to, they were ready for this fight. Now, of course, the Democratic Party immediately ran screaming, leadership ran screaming from the room at the very thought of, you know, a massive, energetic young people coming in to try and make the party better. But I do think that's where the, the turn began. So the, the fact is, I think we're six years into it. I think there's a lot of bumps, there's a lot of push and pull, but at some fundamental level, um, when the Democratic Party stumbles badly, when it screws up, when it fails, um, we now have, I think, a broader, much broader consciousness uh, among a whole bunch of people that there's an alternative route. And so I, I'm, in that regard, I'm hopeful. I just wish that, that history moved more quickly than it does. Well, it could be moving in, in not so good directions. And I got to tell you, yeah. um, you know, you bring up the event in Minnesota. Uh, the event that really did it for me was at the beginning of June in 2015, when he did the rally at the University of Wisconsin. It was about 10,000 people that showed up. And I, and I was like, oh, this this is game on now. This is this is the big leagues. I introduced him. I did. Well, I didn't see the rally. I only I saw pictures. <laughs> I saw pictures. But you could see inside yeah. the arena. It, yeah, it was I, like. This was a re you had to you had to know something was happening. Yeah, that I, I can tell you another story. We were driving up to it. We were coming up to and we couldn't get to it because there's a traffic jam mm -hmm. and we got close. And then we decided to we, to get there in time. We decided to get out and walk to the event. Right. Mm -hmm. So we literally Senator Sanders, a couple of aides. And I was going to I'm from the town, so I was going to introduce him. Um, we were walking and we were walking through the crowd. And people were like looking, going, hold it. That's Bernie Sanders. And um, as we got close to the hall, there was a, a, a but maybe I, I can't even tell you how many, maybe a thousand bikes all chained together, like just a massive number of bikes. And, and Sanders said, well, what's that? And, and I said, those are people that, that decided to get around the traffic by riding bikes to this event. And he said something in Yiddish that was, you know, like, like, a, I'm not worthy. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a it was a remarkable event. And and so I know just what you're talking about. And I don't bring those things up to be nostalgic. That's that that isn't the point. Um, the nostalgia is interesting. And those were some epic moments, to be sure. But I bring it up because I really do believe that that was the beginning of a pivot in our politics. Now, the that sounds very optimistic. The. The downside of that pivot, right, or the downside of that that possibility is that um, when big changes come in our politics, uh, they usually come not just as a result of an individual or a result of a movement, but also a result of events, as a result of the times. And, and I think that's true. And so the question is, can the change in, Demo in the Democratic Party come quickly enough to meet the challenge of these times, because we are quite frankly challenged by the, the threat of fascism, by the threat of, you know, authoritarianism and some really ugly stuff. And so it is a question of can you have a alternative poll that is energizing enough, exciting enough, bold enough uh, to prevail 
in, in that, that great fight for the soul, not just the Democratic Party, but of the United States. I know I'd feel a lot more optimistic if I didn't see a lot of these election suppression techniques and shenanigans and very like just, you know, oppressive voter tactics happening in Democratic states. So it's happening in states. I mean, we see in New York, they're having a total gerrymandering problem. They're they're screwing around with with their election process. And so when you see things like, oh, now they're not you're not able to have a drop box in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. It's not a party thing. It's just the the people in power don't want to share their power with anyone who seems to be challenging what they're doing. And they're going to do everything to suppress the vote. That's what it seems like to me. I don't think it's that partisan. Um, In Wisconsin, it is partisan, um, I I will tell you. But you're right. Your baseline analysis here is is correct, that we're seeing we see both parties do bad things in different states. In Wisconsin, the Dropbox fight really is an extension of Donald Trump's uh, claim that the election was stolen from. And four justices of our state Supreme Court. These are people who went to law school, you know, and theoretically, you know, have some baseline of rationality. But obviously, the last year has shown us that there are many lawyers who don't have that. Um, but they ruled that, uh, you know, drop boxes are some kind of threat to democracy. It was a it, it's stunningly absurd ruling. Uh, and it was deeply anti-democratic. And it was driven by the fact that the four conservative justices on our state Supreme Court who form a 4-3 majority are completely aligned with the right wing leadership of the Republican Party in the legislature. And so that's the reality there. But Jen, when you point out, you know, stuff that's going on in New York and in other places, that's where you're getting to the heart of the matter. The truth is that um, that we have had very little high energy effort by Democrats when they're in power to expand turnout, to expand, you know, participation. Why? I think we know the answer to it. I think there are a lot of Democrats in leadership positions who are afraid of high turnout elections because they're afraid of what might happen. Right. That you bring a whole bunch of people to the table who might not vote the way that that the narrow group that usually comes votes. And so expanding the electorate scares politicians of both parties. Right. Because it it becomes electric. It becomes dynamic. And how do we expand the electorate? We know what happens when we expand the electorate. We bring in young people and people who have historically been marginalized and disadvantaged, you know, move to the sidelines of our politics. When we bring these people into the process, uh, fundamental change occurs very, very quickly. Why? Um, because they have real unmet needs, right? It is, they, they're voting their interests. And we always say, well, why don't people vote their interests, right? You know, why, uh, you know, you're talking about the abortion debate, you're talking about other things. Well, the fact of the matter is, there's a, the voting class of America right now is predominantly people who are angry, perhaps, but relatively comfortable. When you bring in a whole bunch of people who are angry and very uncomfortable, right, because they are suffering from uh, either they're carrying the burden of student debt or they are literally carrying the burden of being unhoused or that they are hungry or that they are that they have marginal jobs and, you know, all the challenges. Bring these people in. Give them a real chance to be a part of the process, to make it to make it change, they will change it very quickly. And we know that because uh, look at the example of Australia. Australia is a country demographically in a lot of ways quite similar to the United States. Not as big a population, but big continent, a lot of, uh, you know, 
indigenous people who were terribly oppressed. Then you brought in a lot of immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, the whole storyline. Australia has universal voting, right? Everybody's got to vote. So you know what they have in Australia? National health care. Like Living that. Wage. Living wage. And you know what happened when they had, had a big uh, shooting? They had a, 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 a very I'm terrible shooting. Yeah, they did complete gun reform in like a, a month. You know, yeah. it's, it's like, so when you have high, high turnout, when you're talking in the 90%, 95%, when you really are at that max turnout, you're going to, it's not going to make you a perfect country. You're going to still have a right and a left. You're going to still have some people that play ugly politics, the whole thing. But there's certain baseline things that you have to do. And so the fact of the matter is we have a, uh, in our country, we have a politics of low turnout that, that both parties, you know, see in different circumstances as advantageous to them, uh, particularly in primaries. Um, and the end result is that we've ended up with a real mess. We don't, we don't move as a country uh, and we allow a marginalization of our politics as a result. I think it's, it's to be expected. You know, when we would be canvassing and we're talking to people, you know, when people are working three jobs and struggling to live, yeah. they don't know who their representative is. And to be honest, they don't really care. Yep. These are people that are like holding on by a thread, which is basically like more than half the country at this point. And that's the problem. And yeah, I do think there's a certain amount of design to that. And that it when people be. are so miserable and distracted, then they're not participating in the democracy. And it's a cycle. I can tell you, and it is a cycle and it's very old. Um, I, I was uh, covering... I was doing uh, media on the night of the, 20, uh, the 2000 election between Bush and Gore. So we were watching Florida very closely. And I was going from a radio station to a TV station. I was in my car and I you know, pulled in for some fine dining at a McDonald's. Um, you know, and I wheeled up to the window to get like a French fries. OK. Um, and the woman at the window, uh, you know, I was giving her my money. And this is this ancient times when you actually talk to people. Right. And I was giving her my money and she was saying the French fries would just be a couple minutes. And I said, did you vote today? And she was probably, you know, a woman in her early 30s. And there was nobody in line. There was nobody else there. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And she said, she said, I really wanted to. I know it was an important election, but, you know, my husband left me. I've got three kids. And so I work. I, I get my kids up and get them to school. And then I work a morning shift at McDonald's. Then I come home. And I make sure they do their homework. I get them, you know, ready for bed. And then my sister comes over and then I work the eight o'clock to midnight shift here at McDonald's again. And I just, you know, I, I really didn't have time, you know, and she was like, she was, she could, you could tell she felt bad about it. She was, you know, she was making this explanation. And I thought to myself, if Al Gore had simply run on one issue, if he had simply said, elect me, I'm going to do national health care or I'm sorry, national, I'd like national health care, but say national child care. Everybody gets child care. It's going to be run through the schools. It's going to be a system, you know, where, you know, it starts as, as soon as you need child care for your kids, the whole bit like that. Um, do you think she would have found the time? I think so, right? You have to give people something to vote for. And the fact of the matter is that um, too often the the Democrats, who are the party that, that tries to do better, and, you know, give them that. But too often the Democrats don't, they, 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 be, they do these vague things of like, we're for education. 
or, you know, well, we don't like gun violence and stuff like that. And that's good. That's wonderful. It's, I absolutely agree with it. But I'm telling you, if you said to people, you give us a majority in this election and I'll make sure that we've got national child care. Every, every, every person, every mom, every dad and every community in this country is going to have free child care. Just going to be guaranteed. Right. We're supposed to like kids. Um, I, I think you would transform politics and I think you would bump up turnout. Um, and clearly that does not happen because the people who donate to campaigns and frankly, the people who run campaigns, that's not their concern. It isn't, it isn't even necessarily a conspiracy, right? right. It's literally, it doesn't even occur to them. They just don't care about you. They do not care. We're speaking with John Nichols, John Nichols of the nation. Um, this is very important considering the implication that the Wisconsin Supreme Court's decision may have, um, this U.S. Senate race in Wisconsin is considered a toss-up. And now you really have to wonder, uh, listen, we've got a lot of bad representatives on the Hill. Ron Johnson is, he tries very hard to be one of the absolute worst that we have in the country. And, 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 you know, you Floridians have made some major efforts in that regard. We've got Rick Scott. Rick Scott's Rick Scott's number one. I'm giving you guys credit for a lot of for making a serious effort, but I'm sorry, Rick Scott. Maybe he's crooked. Maybe all sorts of other problems like that. But he can't beat Ron Johnson on a good day. Ron Johnson, like, literally says whatever comes into his head, whatever it is, and and it can be a complete scorching lie, like, and he can be caught on TV telling the lie, and then. The next day, he will go on, and instead of walking the lie back like any smart politician would, he goes deeper in, right? Because he says, oh, man, I'm out on this limb. I'm going all the way. And the, the fact of the matter is, there is there's no political figure like Ron Johnson in America. There's a lot of bad players, and I'm not trying to even say he's the worst because other people – Ron Johnson's so incompetent at times that he doesn't do as much damage as he could. But the, the fact of the matter is that – um, I don't think there's any question that there are people who got sick there, you know, from COVID because they listened to their senator run around telling them, you know, about snake oil, oil cures and, you know, fears of vaccines and stuff like that. Um, I don't think there's any question that, you know, January 6th was 2001 was worse because Ron Johnson was holding hearings, you know, looking into quote unquote election fraud. You just run down the list. The guy has done it all. And yet. In our evenly divided state of Wisconsin, where uh, the last six presidential elections, four were decided by under 25,000 votes. So this is this state is, you know, cut down the middle. Um, that Senate race is going to be close. It's it is a it will be a close race. And there's no question that a Democrat can win it. But there's also no guarantee. And here's the bottom line. That Dropbox decision, uh, which may make it harder, maybe it makes it harder for 40, 50,000 people to vote, right? People who, you know, that, that it just erects that level of barrier. This Senate race could easily be decided by 40 or 50,000. Exactly. So it's a big deal. Every, in fact, I, I guess the thing of living in Wisconsin at this point is everything's a big deal. Every, course, every little thing is a big deal. And of course, uh, you know, the ballot, uh, you know, the drop boxes are probably a huge uh, factor in the, you know, depressed areas of Milwaukee, 
and and probably a handful of others. So this is not a mistake. This is oh no, this is intentional. This is deliberate, and and I think that that's something that people need to understand. Um, But here's the little wrinkle that makes it so that the GOP, when they do this, you know, people look at it like, well, why should I care? Because I am sure you're well aware of this terrible, what I call, it's it's a scandal. Let's just be honest about it. Um, You know, Matthew Ho, who is the U.S. Senate candidate in the Green Party in, in North Carolina, he is, listen, I got no love for the Green Party. I think they're a joke. I mean, just being honest, it turns out they run their party. But Matthew Ho is a great candidate. He is really solid. And, you know, he came on and he gave us the whole rundown. And the fact that Mark Elias is involved in this and and the fact that they've got uh, recordings of them lying, that they were representatives of the Green Party when in reality they were representatives of the Democratic Party. The GOP cheats the the Democrats and the Democrats cheat progressives. I don't think there's much dispute in that. And when a story like this comes around, it's almost like it's the Streisand effect. Whatever your intentions are in terms of thinking that, well, we can't allow them to vote for the Greens because then they won't be voting for us. Um, I never see the GOP do this with the libertarians. Why is this such a like what? Why do the Democrats feel like they have to move heaven and earth to prevent this guy from being on the Green Party ticket in North Carolina? So let's get to the heart of the matter. Um, We have seen a diminution of our respect for the basic structures of elections uh, over the last 20 years. It's and I I do trace it back to Florida, to your state, to the 2020 presidential election. I think that was there was bad stuff before, without a doubt. But that 2020 or 20, 2000 presidential election, 2000. I apologize. I'm running, I'm running my numbers bad. Florida, you can blame Florida for everything in this country, John. You pretty yeah, much- not everything. It, it, believe me, there's, there's a few <laughs> other states. I, if you've been to Texas, uh, you know, but, uh, but here's the bottom line. In 2000 in Florida, they basically, you know, basically what this U.S. Supreme Court said is, ah, you know what? If we want a certain result, we'll just find the rules that allow us to get that result. And um, and a lot of people, I wrote a book about it, um, years ago It's titled Jews for Buchanan. Um, and, and its argument was that if you believe that, that George W. Bush was elected president, then you have to believe that elderly garment workers from New York and dedicated trade unionists cast their ballots for Pat Buchanan a noted, you know, <laughs> troublesome figure. Um, and of course it's a, it was a lie. They, but you see, People all bought into that lie. And just as they bought into a whole bunch of other lies, um, they got so obsessed with Nader running, you know, as a a green candidate who got a lot of votes and people can get upset about that. But they got so obsessed with that that they didn't look too many people didn't look at the basics of how the the ballot count in Florida was a crisis. And clearly the votes were there for Gore. They just did not count them. What about the fact that there were almost 300,000 registered Democrats that voted for Bush in Florida? That's my point. So you see, we don't do the deeper nuanced analysis of all of this and find out the reality is that it's much more complex. And But what happens, the reason I'm giving that, that history is only to say that we've now seen develop within both parties. There's a, there, I used to see the Republicans do it to the libertarians sometimes. Within both parties, we've seen this thing of saying, nope, we got to game the system every way we can, right? We just, we got to rewrite the rules and rip them up, you know, any way that'll give us an advantage. And, and this is a terrible, terrible message, right? And it's also a terrible, terrible result in America. The fact of the matter is 
that ballots should have a lot of options on them. They should have a whole list of candidates. You should be able to vote, you know, green, libertarian, vegetarian. There used to be a vegetarian party. Uh, Seriously, back in the 50s. Yeah. Look it up. The carnivores ate them. Yeah, they did. They were were served up and and they did not get a lot of votes, but they were there. Um, and, And there used to be in America pretty viable and pretty energetic Socialist Labor Party, Socialist Workers Party, Socialist Party, Communist Party. Um, we forget that that communists were elected to the New York City Council. Communists were elected yeah. as mayor of a small city in northern Minnesota in the 1930s. And and, you know, all across our political spectrum, we've had all of this in there. And most of it's marginal. Right. Most of the third parties don't get very far. Right. But boy, when we start playing the game of saying, you know, eh, you might get some votes that that we don't want that we want. Right. So we're going to knock you off the ballot. Based on that, that never ends well, because the fact of the matter is, if political operatives start to think that, oh, we can knock off this party because that'll help us in the election, then at the end of the day, when do they stop knocking out parties, right? When do they stop, you know, gaming the system so that they win even no matter what happens? And that gets us to right back over to the Republicans who are now talking about legislatures uh, literally uh, canceling out election results and just naming electors, right? So it's an endless cycle. And we, progressives, ought to draw the line. We ought to say, no, we don't accept that. We, we believe that democracy is important enough that you put all those names on the ballot. If, if, you, if somebody goes out, gets the signatures, qualifies for the ballot, they're on the ballot, and it's a battle of ideas. And I'll give you one final reality here. A, a ballot with a lot of names on it, um, if a political party can do one of two things, it can say, oh, I'm going to try and knock that opposition party off the ballot because uh, they might take a few votes from me. Or they can take the ide- the best ideas from that party and make them their own. And if you want to I hear Democrats all the time talk about Franklin Roosevelt, who was, a, you know, not a perfect president, but achieved a lot. Well, in 1932, Norman Thomas was running for president of the United States on the Socialist Party line. He got almost a million votes. And the Communist Party was out there as well. And they got a quarter of a million votes, roughly a quarter of a million votes. They did. The left did very, very well. And Roosevelt got very, very scared by that reality. And you know what he did? He moved left. He took the he invited Norman Thomas, the socialist candidate, to meet with him before he was sworn in. And said, Norm, you got a lot of votes. Tell me some of your ideas. And Norman Thomas was saying stuff like, I don't know, I got an idea for something. We like to call it social security. Um, And so the bottom line is, when you start knocking out third parties, right, and knocking out these alternatives, you end up not just knocking out individuals, you knock out ideas. And you take pressure off uh, the major parties to borrow good ideas. The Republicans, for all their failings, have borrowed a few ideas from the libertarians. Uh, Democrats have as well. And, you know, frankly, there are ideas to be borrowed from the Greens. There are ideas to be borrowed from the socialists. There are ideas to be borrowed, I dare say, from the vegetarians. I think we're at a point now where the reason this is happening is because I think the powers that be sense that there is a that we I mean, they think they dodged a bullet because they really thought Bernie was going to be the next FDR. And listen, we love Bernie but he didn't fight the way he should have. And I think, but with that said, 
I think we're going to get another shot. And I think that they're trying every which way to prevent the inevitable. But here's the thing. History has shown almost 100 years ago that when the world is depressed, they have two choices. That's right. They're going to go in the direction of FDR or they're going to go in the direction of Hitler. You decide how you want this because that's where it's going. Do you when want to know an interesting – now, I noticed that Jen got a little bit, you know, she was like, whoa, I don't know, man. That's using some pretty, that's a pretty stark contrast there. Um, but I'll tell you something. I, when I was younger, I, I worked a lot in the United Kingdom. Uh, and one of my very good friends was a guy named Tony Benn, who was a, he was the longest serving Labor Party member of parliament um, and was a very left wing member of parliament. He represented a constituency called Chesterfield up in the north. And Tony Benn, when I got to know him, was in his 70s. Uh, he lived into his late 80s um, and served in Parliament most of his adult life. And he said, he, he once said to me, he said, look, I, I was a teenager in the 1930s. I remember when we would pick up the newspaper after an election in a country or after a political turbulence in a country, and we would sit around, at, his father was in government, we would sit around the table and we'd say, well, which way did that country go? Did it go toward authoritarianism, toward totalitarianism, or did it go toward democracy? And the fact of the matter is that the United States, for all of its failings, went toward democracy. And that was a huge deal in, in the 1930s. Other countries didn't. A lot of countries didn't. And so at the end of the day, I, I, I'm always careful about comparisons to, to the past because I think we, we evolve. Times are different. How we communicate is different. But I do think there are lessons to be learned. And in that last book I wrote, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, it was based on the story of Henry Wallace, who was the vice president from 1941 to 1945, Roosevelt's very left-wing vice president, who was forced out by the establishment, by the segregationists and the bankers in the Democratic Party of that time. And Henry Wallace wrote an incredible essay in 1943 um, on American fascism. And he said... You know, you should never, ever doubt that America could go fascist. And in fact, that it would be different than in Europe. Um, it might well just involve businessmen gaming the system in a way that that made sure that they never lost their wealth, even if it if the rest of the people suffered. I mean, you read the, the essay that he wrote, it was so prescient, it could have been written today. And And so the bottom line is, I think we've been warned many, many times. Uh, and... We have, for a variety of reason, reason, reasons, dodged the worst of it. But I don't think for a second that we should tell ourselves that, um, that that's guaranteed, that the future w couldn't, couldn't go very bad. And, um, and I think that's why, you know, not that you've asked about it, but why the January 6th commission is a big deal, right? Why we're talking about, you know, like tomorrow's January 6th commission session, Jamie Rask going to lead it. And he'll be talking about Donald Trump sitting in meetings plotting January 6th, and they will have evidence of it. And, you know, at what point do we as a country say, wow, you know, that's kind of bad when you're literally plotting a coup. The, the sitting president of the United States is plotting a coup. We should take things like that seriously. Um, but we shouldn't separate it from the whole of this decay of democracy. And we should recognize that that we have an awful lot of players across our political spectrum 
that simply don't have the level of respect for democracy that, you know, we ought to expect. That ought to be the baseline standard for when you come into politics is that you have a, a baseline, at least a basic respect for democracy. And the fact is that's that is not there. Well, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising. We have a Supreme Court justice that didn't know the five freedoms guaranteed in the First Amendment. So it's really not surprising that but people likes- don't know things. We've fallen very far, judicially speaking, in terms of the qualifications of our jurists. And it's quite disappointing. That's another big part of this for me the past month. It's been a constant reminder of how far we've fallen in our judiciary mm-hmm. from at least highly qualified people that I might not have agreed with, but were extremely, like Scalia, never liked him, never really cared for him, but- Well, you knew he was smart. Oh, I knew he was very smart. Actually, that's probably why I didn't like him. I think he was- Yeah. But but now what we have is just tribalism. And it's ruining all credibility of the entire judiciary is what I think is happening. Oh, I think you're right. And I think that we, you know, historians, this is what I always do. I, I always think to myself, um, how are historians going to write about this moment 50 years from now, 100 years from now? And I can tell you flat out, you know, this moment is going to be defined by what historians will see as a very interconnected set of realities. And they will look at January 6, 2001, the refusal to accept an election result, uh, some of the events before that, uh, and then a, a Supreme Court that went, you know, extrajudicial, right? It, it, yeah. it, it literally broke pattern. Uh, to go to new extremes. And and it will be a long chapter because it won't end with the Supreme Court session that we just finished. I mean, this is, that's just the start of the process. It's going there. They know that they have a window and they are going to go through it. They're going to do everything they can uh, to remake America. And the big stuff that they're going to work on. I mean, our media doesn't know how to cover politics or government. It doesn't cover politics and government. And so as a result, you know, they'll be very obsessed with the, you know, the high profile, hot button issues, which they should be. We should cover them all and we should care about them very deeply. But they won't begin to examine the way that the court will restructure, if it gets its way, will restructure our economy. And what they will do as regards labor rights, um, they, they will literally gut labor unions. Uh, that's next on Samuel Alito's agenda. They will they will gut out uh, huge elements of uh that those minimal things that we do to democratize our economy. And so we're in a very, we're in a very tenuous place there. If we don't realize that and don't recognize it, uh, we're fools. And I will tell you one thing that, that, you know, I mean, when somebody says to me, Oh, I don't know about expanding the court or I don't know about term limits for justice. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're not even serious about this discussion. You know, you're not even paying attention to what's going on here because these people given free reign, uh, a group of relatively young justices will do horrific things, um, and it will definitely make it much harder for this country to function uh, yeah. as anything akin to democracy. I feel like, unfortunately, we don't have a strong labor party anymore, if at all, that's going to fight against those issues and rally people against those types of decisions. So it's like this perfect storm opportunity to totally for the court to crush labor Yep. Because the Democrats abandoned them in the early 90s or even earlier. Well, they, with NAFTA and with the, the trade policy fights. So when, you know, it's, a, it's like a party that, that said it was grounded in organized labor and that, that labor was its, you know, kind of touchstone. Um, labor said these are terrible trade policies. They're going to they're going to gut communities. They're going to gut 
the, the livelihoods of workers across this country, and they're not going to help workers in other countries. Labor was exactly right, and yet Bill Clinton did the exact opposite. And so there you saw, you know, the, the abandonment. And the tragedy of the Democratic Party now is that increasingly it treats labor as a special interest. Yes. Right? It's, it's yeah. pro-labor. You know, they're titularly pro-labor. But, but it's like, yeah, we have to be good to labor and we have to be good to, you know, sugar, sugar beet growers. And we have to, you know what I mean? It's like this list of, of, of special interests. And labor isn't a special interest. Labor is, it is an entity, the, the, the counterbalance to business, right? To corporate power. And if you treat it as, as just a source of campaign contributions or maybe some volunteers or something like that, you're missing the whole point. And it's clear the Democratic Party has missed the point on this because um, in the critical fights of the early 2010s in Wisconsin and, and a bunch of other states, uh, they didn't go to the mat at the level that they should have, um, you know, all in. And as a result, we've seen right to work laws, which, you know, in Florida now spread all over, all over the upper Midwest, Michigan, the birthplace of the UAW has right to work law. And so a lot of bad stuff has happened in this regard, but in, you know, and again, I don't want to be the, you know, the downer on this conversation, but I'm going to tell you that I write a lot about and pay a lot of attention to. And that's where the Supreme Court is going. The Supreme Court is going hard. Uh, they will go hard against organized labor, against teachers unions, et cetera, which are somewhat separate from their unions, but they're, they're viewed with a special disdain by, by a lot of conservatives. Um, and then they will, again, they will go at anything that democratizes our economy. Uh, what needs to happen, um, because in my opinion, um, I mean, I didn't think Biden was going to be a good president. I didn't think he would be this bad. This is historically bad uh, territory that he's entering. And I think the rumblings of him being primaried are getting pretty serious, even though they're trying to keep everybody in line. Um, do you believe he's going to run again? And do you believe he'll be primaried? That's a very good set of questions. Um, can I, if, if we got time, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. Go for that it. In 1987... At the nation, or I think it was, I'm sorry, was it that long? It wasn't that long. No. At the nation in 2007, I believe, um, we were having somebody write a, a positive article about everybody who might run for president, right? And so we had somebody writing about John Edwards and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Dennis Kucinich, uh, who I really liked a lot. Uh, but they had somebody for all of them. But one of the others said, but we don't have anybody to write about Joe Biden. And I said, I'll do it. You know, I, and and this is the fact. You know, I, I looked at Biden's record, actually spent a decent amount of time writing about, him. you know, he's a standard issue Democratic liberal. He was his, his voting record was as liberal as Obama's. It was an Edwards and stuff like that. He's he's not a you know, he wasn't some kind of right winger. He's relatively in the mainstream of the Democratic Party of the 1990s into the 2000s. Um, and as he competed for the presidency, he, um, you know, he tried to adopt some of the language of the left, even in the in that 2020 campaign. I think it benefited him tremendously. But it's not who he is. It's not where his heart is. And the fact of the matter is that as president of the United States, 
he he just hasn't had the the focus, you know, the 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 sense of mission that is needed. I actually don't think he's the worst guy. I, I'm, I'm give him I'll give him his due. If somebody wants to hate Joe Biden, they can you know go for it. But that's not where I'm at. Where I'm at is I just don't think that he is that he has hit his mark in any way as president. That he's he's figured out how to do this, and that was the point. He was supposed to know how to do it. 36 years in the Senate, eight years as vice president of the United States, you're supposed to get the power and know how to exercise it. Um, I think the failure to do so has caused massive disappointment on the part of uh, elements of the Democratic base that are needed to get the level of turnout that you need. So then we get to your answer to your question. Joe Biden is a man of politics. He's been involved in politics since the late 1960s. I mean, literally running for office uh, for an immense amount of time. I think he is a realist. Um, I think that when you ask whether he will run for reelection, I think there is a reality that he will look at what is possible. Uh, if it if he thinks it's possible to run for reelection, he will. I, I don't think there's any doubt of that. On the other hand, I think if it looks overwhelming and it's just not a good idea, I think that his his deep political roots. Uh, make it possible that he will not. Um, but that doesn't necessarily solve the Democratic Party's problems, because if Biden stands down, then you still have you will have a, a huge number of people who say, well, Kamala Harris should be the nominee. then, Right. And uh, and that's there are real challenges there because Harris has, whether fairly or not, has not, you know, been given the platform as vice president to really identify, you know, again, a mission, a vision in the way that's needed. So I think the Democratic Party is likely, not certain, but likely to have some kind of primary fight in uh, 2024. And I don't know how serious it will be. That's always a challenge. You know, it's always a question. But I, I think that whether Joe Biden runs himself or whether uh, it is Kamala Harris running as a, sort of the, the next step of the Biden administration or some other circumstance, I just think there'll probably be a primary contest. Um, and and I think it will be a complex one because it'll be rooted in a sense of urgency. And yeah. one of the worst battles is a battle over urgency, right? Right, because you will have supporters of Joe Biden uh, and the Biden administration saying, it is urgent that people back Biden because you've got the threat of DeSantis or Trump or somebody else, you know what I mean? So we got to, everybody's got to unite. There. No, you can stop. No, you can stop there. It's two men. It's Trump or DeSantis. There is nobody else. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you uh, it, as much as I, I, you know, long for the idea of, of a Tom Cotton presidential race. Um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but you're right. And so you got that. And so they're going to say, there's this urgent need. We got to all get together to fight against that. And then you're going to have a, a, I think a very rational portion of the Democratic Party that will say, yeah, it is so urgent. We need a candidate who can win. Yeah. You know, and so that's that that's where the fight will end up. And I'm being actually very clinical here, I'm not telling people what to think or where to go on that. fight. you know what I mean? People are going to have to sort that out because I think it's very complex. But I will tell you that. I've been around this long enough to be pretty sure that that. There's going to be some sort of, you know, there'll be some sort of struggle there. And um, yeah, go ahead. 
No, it just, it shouldn't be given to them. They're doing a horrible job. Move over. It's, and you know, I actually fell for it in 20. I did. I fell for it and I sucked it up and held my nose and I voted for Joe and, and I, and I'm not going to do it again. There's no universe that they're going to paint for me. That's scary enough. That's going to justify me doing that again. And I respect you, Jen. I will tell you that I can imagine a universe where I would do it. Right. And yeah. so we can, we may differ on that. Yeah. And, um, but at the end of the day, our difference on that, if indeed there, if, if it exists is not, that's not where the play is going to be. Right. The play is going to be, um, the play is now, to be honest, the 2022 election cycle will define the 2024 election cycle. If Democrats hold on, uh, in the Senate, hold a majority, if by some chance they were to hold a majority in the house, which I think is very, very hard, um, then, you know, you're going to see the Democratic Party uh, define itself in one way. On the other hand, if Joe Biden becomes the most lame duck president in history, right, that if he's got a Republican House and a Republican Senate and it's just a, you know, a nightmare ride for two years of complete, you know, federal dysfunction, that's going to define, frankly, the Democratic Party in the circumstance in another way. And so, um, we could talk about what we'll think about 2024. Right. Um, the reality is it's going to be 2024 is going to be shaped by what happens in Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, maybe Ohio, you know, a handful of states. And and I can tell you, it's going to be an incredibly ugly fall here. You know, we've, we've been we kind of been we've, we've been trying pretty hard to make this the most depressing show ever. And, um, and I know, and we're doing pretty well, um, you know, and, and, and I just would tell you that, that the fact of the matter is that there's like three or four Senate races that are pretty much going to go a long way toward deciding the fate of the nation. And that isn't, I'm not telling you, I'm not in that this is the most important election election in history or something like that. Uh, the most important election in history was probably 2016 and, and Trump became president and that was bad. You know, yeah. a lot of bad came of that. And maybe, you know, a lot of things, other things. But the reality is that these Senate races are going to be a big deal. And I'll give you a good, as long as we're doing anecdotes, I'll give you a good anecdote from Wisconsin. So one of the leading candidates for the Senate in Wisconsin is a guy named Mandela Barnes. He's the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, pretty progressive guy, um, uh, African-American from the city of uh, Milwaukee. Uh, father was a UAW third shift worker. Mom was a teacher. I mean, he's pretty impressive, you know, story and he's running a pretty good campaign. He's not necessarily going to be the nominee, but the Republicans are really afraid of him. They don't like him. So they took a speech that he gave last summer at a library on they had a reading thing where they read books about racism. And and he's talking about the founding of the United States. And he said, you know, we had slavery and terrible treatment of Native Americans, things of that nature. It was pretty terrible at the founding of the United States. In fact, he said it was awful. Right. And the Republicans took a clip of that and they said, Mandela Barnes says the founding of the United States was awful. <laughs> you know, I mean, just flat out the country. It's like and and you're like, I was talking to him about it, you know, or, or communicate back and forth about it. And 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 I said, well, that was, you know, that was so over the top. It, it's it's kind of surreal. Right. You know, it, it's and he says, I, yeah, I can't believe it. I, I didn't ever think I would be in this race where, you know, they're doing this, but this is just the start of it. They're going to do, they, they're going to do things that are jaw dropping. And 
Um, so because because they played a win by any means necessary. That's without a doubt. Without yeah. a doubt. And it, and all I would say about it is that as I look at this fall, you know, I think there's a whole bunch of races across this country that cover politics for a living. I think there's a bunch of races across this country that are really going to kind of, for better or worse, answer a lot of the questions that we're talking about with 2024 and beyond. And so. I would definitely say that the race that I feel uh, the most confident about is I do believe John Fetterman is going to win in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, you're right. Uh, I think he's a great candidate. I think he is sort of the he is a throwback Democrat from the rural part of Pennsylvania. Yep. Um, he's a very imposing figure, which is something that you don't see often in the Democratic side. Um, and he's got a shtick that I think works with a lot of people because he, you know, he doesn't try to mince words and he dresses like an average Joe. And mm -hmm. I think that there really is something to that that I think really appeals to a lot of people. I don't think Tim Ryan is a good candidate. Um, I'm sure he's a decent guy, you know, whatever that's worth. Um, but I, I think that Trump has really staked his claim in Ohio. Uh, I think J.D. Vance is just going to ride that wave Um you know, be nice. I mean, I know polls suggest that it's a closer race than it really is, but I don't, uh, Ohio, it really, if you want to talk about the Democrats' greatest mistakes, the way that they have let Ohio go is a complete disaster of, of epic proportions. I was, uh, a, go ahead. I was going to say, I was a reporter for the, as a young reporter for the Toledo Blade, and I, I actually saw that, you know, this is a, this is a quarter century long decline in the Democratic Party in Ohio. And I also think the and I also think the mistreatment of Nina Turner um, is oh, yeah. not is not going to sit well with a lot of uh, progressives who are just going to be like, nah, screw it. You know, they don't want us. Well, we don't want them either. There's a, there could be an element of that, although I, I think that that uh, we will see. We'll see where that ends up going. I, I but I hear what you're saying. And I think that's, you know, I mean, not, you know, not sending Nina Turner to Congress at this point is just dumb. I agree. You know, and it's just dumb because you I, need firebrands who are going to go and fight fights, right? And and make noise and do things. And um, and so I, I, I've always that that we could do. You know, you know, John. If you think if you think about it, if you think about it, because mm -hmm. there have been a couple of names who have been floated for president. I do think that it, I don't think Nina's going to run, but whoever does run, whoever that potential progressive that can carry the torch would run. You would have been better served having Nina in the halls of Congress than you would having her get on the trail again and be like the ultimate, you know, rallying cry for a potential candidate. Like that's where she's at her greatest strength. Mm -hmm. And at a time where the party is desperately trying to fend off this left movement, yep. it, you ultimately end up biting off more than you can chew. And I think that they did that with Nina really. going. Now, to and, they, and to be honest, if it done, they haven't, they've done it in quite a few races. You know, yeah. I'm watching races across the country where, you know, there's huge amounts of outside money flowing into primaries now to try and stop the candidate who ultimately would be the more dynamic figure, you know, in in Congress and in the future. So there's a lot of that going on. There's clearly, as I keep saying, a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. The, the conservative forces, the corporate forces are well aware of that. Um, I often wonder if progressives are fully aware of it as, I, aware, I, as they should be, that they are, there, there is an ongoing daily battle for the soul of this party. Um, but the, I, I want to come off one thing you said that I think is very wise. Um, many things you said are very wise. But um, but uh, 
you know, don't underestimate Fetterman. Don't underestimate him. I, I think you're right that he's he is very likely to win. And his approach, this urban rural, you know, going to the counties that no Democrats gone to for decades. Uh, this is really smart. It's it's a very savvy politics. And um, do not underestimate that if John Fetterman gets elected to the United States Senate, um, and frankly, that if Mandela Barnes or someone like it, one of the other good candidates in Wisconsin gets elected, um, Raphael Warnock in in Georgia, you're gonna you could suddenly suddenly see a whole new discussion about who might be presidential in this country. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. And I and I definitely agree. Um, I think 24 is going to be a very unique election cycle. I think it's going to. Um, I don't think it's going to be anything traditional, but I could definitely see the argument being made for where things will go in 28. Uh, yep. I do think it is absolutely essential that Fetterman wins. Um, I think, like you said, you would know Wisconsin better than we would, most certainly. Um, if Mr. Barnes is going to be the nominee, uh, I know that there are four other candidates that are running. Uh, do you like his chances? Because again, it is a toss-up, and obviously the, way, the, yeah, the Wisconsin Supreme question. Court, you know, throwing this wrinkle into the into the process. What a surprise! Uh, but but I, I do think uh, again for a state that has a very progressive lean, but also a libertarian lean, uh, I do think that there is a really good chance that Mandela can pull this off. And do, do you see that happening? And not just because he's a good candidate and he does have a progressive lean, but also because he is running against one of the absolute worst representatives we have on Capitol Hill. Well, that's a very good question. And of course, I mean, the, politics is always this wild inter intersection, right, of, uh, you know, how good a candidate is and how bad your opponent is. Right. And these things all, you know, you, you sort this all out and it's complicated. But uh, but a couple of things on Wisconsin that I think are relevant. First off. There are several outstanding candidates for the United States Senate in the Democratic primary. And I'm not here to tell people, you know, where to go. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, there's a candidate running the Outagamie County executive from up in northeastern Wisconsin, from the county where Joe McCarthy started his career. Right. Very. This is Trump country. Or not all Trump country. The Democrats have a little base up there, but it's an area where Republicans have won a lot. And this guy is the county executive up there. He's won three times for the top county job. Uh, and he was a Bernie Sanders delegate in 2020. And he's running on single payer national health care, uh, immigrant rights, the whole, the whole progressive agenda. His name is Tom Nelson. And yeah. he's a really impressive candidate, you know, and, I, and he's deeply committed to labor rights. And, and I, you know, I, I'm just not going to you know, talk him down. I think he's he's quite an impressive candidate. And I think it's important to, to mention his name in this context. Um, Mandela Barnes, who I've known for a very, very long time, uh, has been there for the big battles in the Wisconsin fight, in, in Wisconsin's uh, battle for labor rights back in 2011. Uh, he came up as a young organizer in that fight, was very outspoken, was way out front, obviously coming from a labor family. And uh, and then in 2012, he beat a Democrat. He challenged a Democratic legislator in the primary because that legislator was backing school choice, was backing, you know, like privatization of education and things of that nature. So he's got a good record of, you know, being on the right side of a lot of issues. And um, and he is currently the front runner in the race. Um, there's two other candidates. There's Alex Lazary, who's the owner of the or, you know, one of the managers and 
remember the family that owns the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, he's very, very wealthy. and He spent a lot of his own money. Um, and then there's uh, Sarah Godlewski, who's the state treasurer. Uh, and she is a very impressive, uh, very energetic, smart uh, political player who saved the office of state treasurer from Scott Walker and then ran for it and won it. Uh, and he's frankly a, a quite impressive candidate. So you got this field, right? And here's the bottom line. I only lay all that information out to tell you that in polling, they, uh, Mandela Barnes, Sarah Godlewski, and Tom Nelson all beat Ron Johnson in the polling. And uh, Alex Lazary, the, the Bucks guy, is essentially tied with Ron Johnson. So the fact is that um, whoever the Democrats nominate is going to be, they're going to be quite viable. It's going to be a doable race. So you ask me, can Mandela Barnes run win? I will tell you, yes, he can win. I will also tell you that I think Sarah Godlewski can win. I think that that uh, Tom Nelson can win. I think there's probably, it's a little bit, his polling is a little bit weaker there, but a chance that, that Alex Lazary can win. And and so the question becomes, if that's the reality, right, uh, I always tell people, go back to what you want. Vote for who you vote for who you believe in on that list of candidates, because, you know, the, the reality is that that there's a viability there. Um, I will tell you that one last thing I'll throw into the mix and, and you can put it where you want. Um, I've been very, very impressed by Mandela Barnes who was born and raised in Milwaukee, uh, comes out of, uh, as he always notes, the most incarcerated zip code in the state, one of the most incarcerated in the country, uh, a very poor and working class neighborhood. Uh, he grew up there in a working class family. Um, and he he really gets labor issues in his heart and soul. I mean, it's, it's real for him. Uh, and the other thing about him that's quite fascinating is he spends an immense amount of time in rural Wisconsin. He's one of those Democrats like Fetterman who has not given up on the notion that Democrats can organize and build something in rural areas. Um, and so uh, where the other candidates were, you know, they do their videos from, you know, all sorts of like whatever spot they do around. It, it, Mandela Barnes very frequently does, you know, his stuff from a farm. And he has, he has nurtured a, a rural base, uh, which is uh, that old fashioned upper Midwest farm labor type coalition, or he's trying to do it. Uh, I think Tom Nelson, another candidate, is also trying to do that. And so, you know, I enjoy covering the race because I'm seeing people do some things that I actually think they should do. And and to in that very long answer, which I apologize for, uh, the bottom line is I do think that you asked me if Mandela Barnes can get elected. Yeah, he can. And I do think several of the others could as well. Um, it's really a question of if people don't lose their nerve, it, nobody's going to win that Senate seat running as a centrist. That isn't going to happen. Yeah. The only way to win that Senate seat is to run as an old school Wisconsin progressive with a message that is economic and social and racial justice. And that, that, you know, rises to that, that, you know, it basically asks people to rise to the historic traditions of the state, um, trying to run run to the center, run cautious, Ron Johnson will eat that up. I definitely agree. And that has always been the hallmark of where so many of these things end up going. Um, 
very often, I think people really take for granted just how angry this country is. Mm -hmm. Um, But also the fact that there is a really strong progressive streak. And there's one last question I want to ask you, John, before we conclude. Um, There is a serious problem in the Democratic Party. I think it has as much to do with the fact that it was once a party of labor in terms of who the the people who were the voices were. You know, this is not... um, this is not Robert LaFollette's uh, Democratic Party anymore, a socialist party. Yeah, by the way, Robert LaFollette wasn't a Democrat. He was a Republican. Ah, very interesting. Which just and, tells you so much about where the Republican Party has gone over the last uh, last hundred years. Yeah. Well, Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president. but very, well, Even Eisenhower was pretty good. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was. And there were probably, uh, and there were, listen, there were elements of Nixon that were good too. But again, you know, we are where we are and, you know, the country's changed significantly. But the one thing that really has happened in the Democratic Party is that it used to be the party whose voice would be the voice of somebody like a Jimmy Hoffa. Now, you could take with that what you want, but the voice today is the voice of upper class liberals in major city schemes. And as a result of that, because their voice is so prominent and the audacity of the Biden administration to bring somebody like Deborah Messing to the White House the other day is just absolutely insane. But with that said, I hope you can see Jen laughing over it. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. But the fact <laughs> is, why, uh, why is there so much sanctimony in the Democratic Party and the fact that they continue to vote shame, they continue to tell people that you're terrible for wanting more. I saw the reactions to people today with Manuel Oliver speaking out against uh, Biden not doing enough mm-hmm. and, and listening to these people just tell them, shut up and take and it's like eat your broccoli. Like yeah. that's that th- there is this when people are too comfortable in life. They have a tendency to tell people to kick rocks instead of saying, man, they really must have it pretty bad. No, shut up and be grateful for what you have. Why is that still so prevalent? Uh, and and thinking that they're probably going to pay a, a hefty price for that uh, at yeah. some point. Well, the Democratic Party has been now, you know, it's coming on to 80 years of battle for its soul. And, uh, and that battle for the soul of the Democratic Party uh, has developed a dynamic unto itself. And so you have the descendants of the people who stopped Henry Wallace in 1944, the, the corporate types, the conservatives, you know, and, and some of them in 44 were actually segregationists. Now you have folks who are, um, I, I think, evolved on 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 at least some issues of race and gender, but still often remain uh, very, very conservative, frankly. And so this this base within the Democratic Party uh, has succeeded in virtually every election cycle since uh, 1944 in getting its way. And occasionally the left will you know, kind of like upset the apple cart, right? A McGovern will get nominated in 72. And Obama in 2008, and Obama was not a leftist, but he was somebody who was clearly, he did break the pattern of the party. And so you get these moments where, you know, it, it the establishment does get upended a little bit, maybe even a lot. And what 
is clear, what, what's become clear to me in writing about the Democratic Party is that when that happens, the establishment reconstitutes and it becomes more important to them to get to get back in the driver's seat of the party, right, and to have control of the party than anything else. And uh, I would never go so far. I wouldn't do the casual suggestion that they don't care if Democrats win as long as they're in charge. It's a little more complicated than that. Um, but they genuinely believe they should be in charge. And they are very uncomfortable with opening the door to new people, to new ideas. And they may do it for a moment. And you saw this, uh, you know, there's no question that after the 2016 election, you saw the Democratic Party, you know, at least make noises about moving to the left. And uh, and there was a real there was a, a churn there. And and you thought, well, OK, the pattern has begun. But no, we're back. We're seeing exactly what we have seen since the 1940s. Um, the establishment, even though it's clear they need better ideas and they need a better approach is so deeply committed to maintaining its control of the party, to main keeping the party within its narrow boundaries, uh, that they're willing to, to sacrifice brilliant young leaders to, to spend millions in a primary to defeat somebody who's far more dynamic and who has far more of a future for the party than who they're backing, but they won't, they, they just won't do it. And we're seeing it across the country this year. I mean, the amount of money that has been spent to do, to try and defeat, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but to try and defeat, you know, a rising generation of dynamic candidates like, you know, Jessica Cisneros and, and others. And, and, and you just, you look at this and, and you realize the, the reality that at the end of the day, the establishment of the Democratic Party is always going to be committed to, be determined to try and maintain the control it's had now for 80 years. And, um, and that begs the question of, you know, how do you challenge that establishment, right? Do you go outside as a third party, right? Do you say, okay, we can never change the Democratic Party, so we're going to go a third party route. Well, as you were saying before I even came on, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have a stranglehold on our election laws in this country, and they have made it, and our media, they have made it very, very hard to develop an alternative poll or to develop a, a third party route. Uh, first past the post elections, a host of other things. Um, and so if you want to get to multi-party democracy, which I think is healthy, um, you got to do a lot of election reform to get there. Yeah, that, and ranked choice voting is a huge thing that we that we advocate for. Which we should be. And, and, and Jen, I know you well enough to know you've got 10 other things on that list as well, yeah. right? And so the the reality is that um, that that sort of progressive forces are driven back into the Democratic Party, right? They're they're because of the barriers, uh, you know, uh, to alternative routes. And and what I desperately think needs to happen is for progressives to fully recognize that they are in a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. That it's it is a real ongoing battle, and they have to organize as an entity that is as strong and as permanent as the establishment, right? It can't be, 
just built around one candidate and one election cycle or one issue in one election cycle. It's got to be something that goes deeper and that is, in fact, permanent. That is, that there is a left within the Democratic Party that absolutely refuses to bend, that it says, no, we are fighting, we are fighting for something real here. And, um, and that means it does mean primary challenges. It does mean, you know, uphill fights, but also some that, that are quite winnable. And it means, you know, having a program, having an agenda and not, not backing off from it. And um, I think, you know, you want to say, well, that's pretty idealistic or wow, that, you know, yeah, it's nice to say, but it, it can't happen. With all due respect, that's what the right did in the Republican Party. They, they, you look at the Republican Party in the 1970s, the right was not welcome. You know, I mean, uh, Ronald Reagan got beat for the Republican nomination in 1976. And there was, uh, I mean, even in 1980, uh, George H.W. Bush was talking about voodoo economics, right? I mean, they, they fought hard to prevent the right from getting control of the Republican Party. But ultimately, the right did. They redefined that party, I think, much to the worse. But um, the fact is, I think the left could define the Republican, the Democratic Party for the better. And and I definitely I think that 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 notion of a long term, deeply committed struggle based around a set of issues and a willingness to fight, you know, election cycle after election cycle in those primaries, uh, because that's how you define a party. It's a healthy way to define a party. Um, Maybe you come together in November. I understand that. But but still, that ongoing battle for the soul of the party. Um, I don't I no longer think that that's just a political fight. I actually think that's a fight that will define, you know, whether America survives as the country we want it to be. I think it's that important. I think that's a great place to end. And the, the last anecdote that I'll throw out there is that uh, if Bernie wanted to be president as badly as Ronald Reagan wanted to be president, he would have been president. And that's and that's the bottom line. John, where can people find you? Anything you're working on? Anything you want to plug before we start? <laughs> well, I will plug uh, my friend Jen, who uh, who does a good show, and and her comrade who, who contributes so mightily here. And uh, and so I'm very glad to join the two of you and talk about this stuff. We might even disagree on some things, which I think is wonderfully healthy. Um, yeah. But it's it's just a pleasure to come and join you. Um, what I am working on is. Uh, uh, I'm writing a lot about these primaries. I'm going to write about Andy Levin's primary up in Michigan, uh, which is a big deal, which we didn't, we haven't talked about. We could go race after race. Um, I am, uh, I am working on writing a lot about some book projects, toying with the project of writing uh, a book on the Republican Party, uh, and and how great it used to be and how awful it's become. Uh, but but actually. It, with a purpose, and that would be uh, to suggest that parties evolve and change, and they can change for the better, they can change for the worse. But uh, I want to try and break people out of the, the I want to break people out of party loyalty and get them more into an idea of seeing political parties as vehicles that that can be changed and that that fundamentally do change over time. And so I could go on about it, but there's a I on any given day I've got ten. 10 things I, I uh, want to do and then 10 things I know I have to do. Uh, so it's good to it's good to take a, a breather at this time of the evening and just talk politics with some smart people. 
Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Guys, follow John Nichols Uprising on his Twitter. And um, yeah, it's always good to touch base with actual journalists. It's nice to talk <laughs> to people that pay attention to things. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be with you too. And I hope you stay strong. Uh, and if you could do me this quick favor of rescuing Florida. We're working on it. We're working on it. When Jen, it, not if, when Jen runs against Wasserman Schultz again, we're going to need all the help we can get because she is the cog in the equation as to why the Democratic Party is so inept here in Florida. It's deliberate and it starts with her. We are so grateful that you came on as always. Keep up the amazing work. John Nichols of the Nation. Check out his work, guys. We'll definitely be talking to you again soon. All right, you too. Take care. Bye, John. Bye-bye. Bye, brother. Always lovely. He's one of the he's one of the good ones. And, yeah, you um, know, it's like it's just important that we keep platforming platforming the people that are doing the real work. And I I just I'm very appreciative that we even still have people that are doing the real work. Well, you know, it's kind of like when we had um, Greg Palast on the show way back when. Yeah. Know, even something as simple as somebody who really was on the ground figuring out you know election integrity and. Greg said it best. He's, you know, that's really where I get my line from. Greg said Republicans cheat Democrats in every way they can possibly get away with it. And Democrats cheat progressives in every which way that they possibly can. Which is why I always tell people as somebody and I again, I hate the labels, but as somebody on the left side of the Democrats, we don't have like we're not able to fight against Republicans. People are always wanting us. Oh, just save it for the Republicans. We don't get that opportunity because we're too busy fighting to even get that chance within our own party. Yeah, it's true. So that's the problem. I'd be happy to be, you know, contest races against Republicans. We can't get ourselves in those positions without going through the establishment Democrats. And that's again, uh, you know, when I when I think about um, there was something, there, there was this kind of like this moment that I just took away the other day when I was listening to, you know, Charlie and, and Nikki and just realizing even in that room, even in that room, of a, a room of, you know, black Americans who are considered the backbone of the democratic voting base and always thinking that they'll always be, you know, enthusiastic and excited about the prospect of voting and, helping the party win. And I walked out of there thinking there's no enthusiasm in this room at all. The one person who I would say that there was enthusiasm for a considerable amount, I have to say, is for Sheila uh, Sherfalis McCormick. There was enthusiasm for her. There there are people who really do um, gravitate to her. Uh, That energy is real. And I I knock on wood, knock on wood, and we're going to be out there helping her. but but I do think she's going to win re-election against Dale Holness, and I think that her seat is secure. Uh, I think that that is very important because there's not a lot of, again, good uh, representatives that are out there. Um, but once you get past that, you know, I mean, we love Marie Woodson. You know, she's one of the truly good representatives that we do have. She was my neighbor for a year. Um but that, that's not a lot. You know, there's, there's not a lot to lean on. Um, and a lot of the people, you know, this is kind of like why I, I mean, I go to a lot of local networking events down here that are not political because I'm in real estate and I want to make as many connections as I can. But what it dawned on me is that even tonight, even tonight, um, 
you know, there's a gentleman, not going to name any names, but, you know, it's one of the gentlemen that that's a regular guy. And he is a he is as much a Trump supporter as you could. I mean, he's a stop the steal Trump supporter. He's he's at that level. Are you talking about that guy that I talked to that night at the outdoor? Bald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who you're talking about. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, You know, nice guy. But I got to tell you, even when I have a conversation with somebody like him about politics, when we talk about the need to have tuition-free trade schools, and even he would be agreeable potentially to tuition-free public college, it's not that complicated, people. I know you all think that everyone is a lunatic and everyone is off in another direction, like you can't reach them. It's not true. It's just that most people don't know how to talk to anybody. And you see that all the time, this whole idea that it's, let's just bash one side and talk about how great we are. Like, honestly, it really dawned on me the other day, Jen, the fact that the Biden administration invited Deborah Messing to the White House to talk strategy. It's like, that's how, where they are, but that's how fucking lost are you? What? <laughs> I got Joe elect. That is one of the, the, I mean, listen, that's like Trump level narcissism on Deborah Messing's part to, to say, I got Joe elect. How? She really, I mean, honestly, Will and Grace, which was a popular show in the early 2000s, are you still like, is she still trying to cruise on that? Like, is that what she's, because that's the only time in her career where she was really a star. I mean, I know people know who she is and all of that, but I mean. She ain't no Susan Sarandon. (laughs) I've always maintained that I always thought one of the biggest reasons why Messing came after Sarandon so hard is because I think there's a lot of jealousy there. I, I, think I don't even care enough to read into it because it doesn't matter. I don't care. No, I know it doesn't, but I really do think that there is a level of jealousy surrounding that. Well, one uh, I, person I, is an actual actress and the other person is just a talking head. One's an actress that has won multiple awards, including an Oscar and probably multiple instances. I mean, listen, she should have won the Oscar. I know Gina Davis had a big part of it, but Susan Sarandon should have won the Oscar for Thelma and Louise. And there are, you know, she probably could have won the Oscar for Bull Durham. I mean, if there's. She won for Dead Man Walking. It was more worthy. What? Well, she yeah, went for Dead Man Walking, which was more worthy. So, what do we have coming up? We have a big, exciting day on Wednesday, guys. Big we're going to be here. We have well, we have. Uh, and by the way, Mo will be coming on next week. So, on Wednesday, we have a huge, huge guest. One of the biggest, personally, one for me, um, because he is the first person I ever voted for for president of the United States, and that is General Wesley Clark, who I still maintain to this day. If he was the nominee for the Democrats in 2004, he is the president. He would have beat George Bush. You, you, you got a general against an AWOL silver spoon, uh, you know. Well, it wasn't like, yeah, I know. And they wouldn't have been able to have their way with him as much as they did with, say, John Kerry. That's true. Well, John Kerry... <laughs> And you worked on Kerry's campaign. Well, I was on the legal team because remember, this was after the 2000 election. So you knew that they were going to try something in Ohio and they did. And I don't know if that ultimately was the difference. But did you work with Mark Elias? Like, did you know him personally? You mean from the campaign? Yeah. No, I was on the Florida legal team. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. That's different. 
Yeah, it was uh, a statewide Florida legal election legal team. So, well, yeah. but but I think I think John really you know hit a lot of the key points. You know, there's been a neoliberal vacuum within the party that's been very strong. Got, you know, it's funny. It's true that they were strong after they got Harry Truman instead of Henry Wallace. But, you know, JFK was very progressive uh, in many ways. And then, of course, you obviously had LBJ have a number of progressive policies that he implemented. Um, But the truth is, it was the DLC in, in the mid 80s when Clinton really gained his power and then obviously as president. And, you know, people forget the the whole corporate special interest takeover of the Democratic Party is directly traced to the Clintons. They got to the White House because of the Waltons of Walmart. That's I'm glad you're bringing this up because, you know, we're having a guest coming up and I'm in the process of reading the book, listening to the book. And this is exactly what it's about. It's called Left Behind. And it has That's to do with Dr. Prasher, right? It's Lily Geismer. Oh, Lily Geismer. Right, right, right. Yeah, we got a couple of good. We got a couple of good books uh, coming up, guys, that you, you probably would be. This book is really talks about how the Democratic Party really left its ideals of labor and skewed into the direction that it is now. And it's it's a big part of what you're talking about is in that book is in that history. Yeah, well, you know, and the thing that I I don't think it's talked about enough, which I think is very important. You know, there was a lot of people who think that the reason why the Democrats moved to the right because of Reagan uh, and just abandoned labor. No, there were a lot of people who saw the financial windfall that the Reagan movement was having. And they're like, oh, I want in on that. That's exactly what it was. It was exactly that. They wanted to collect a payday. They saw the dollar signs. I mean, if people in the, you know, if people in the Reagan administration we're all becoming these, you know, if, if Wall Street yuppies, the American businessman was now the guy. And this is also the rise of Trump. This is, you know, Trump really came up in that whole movement, this whole idea that, you know, I can still remember as a young guy, you know, I, I would see Trump like everywhere. You know, he was always at the fights. And I'm thinking, what's so special about this guy? I mean, I know he brands himself and all that, but they treated him like he was a source of information that people just needed to hear what he had to say. And that, to me, had a lot to do with that whole ascension of the Wall Street yuppie is what defines us now. And that really is Reagan's legacy in so many ways. And there were just tons of people in Democratic Party politics who said, well, if they're getting rich, I want to get rich, too. So we'll just move. And they did because the money wasn't there with unions. And the truth is they were looking for an excuse. And when Reagan fired the air traffic controllers in the summer of 81, that was the signal to, okay, it's time to move away. And they did. And that's why you had Walter Mondale take the biggest electoral ass kicking in the history of our country in 1984. That's not a mistake. So we are where we are, but I think enough people are getting pissed and we're eventually going to, I mean, hopefully. I mean, we're imploding. Okay, oh, guys, yeah. so we have General Clark on Wednesday. And we also have candidate for Attorney General of Florida, Daniel Olfelder. Uh, 
The reason why we're having him on is because he has um, he's made quite a following for himself on social media. Uh, he is the guy who dressed up as the Grim Reaper at the beaches up in Jacksonville, which is uh, good for a laugh. Um, but what's most important about the attorney general is that the attorney general decides whether or not to prosecute certain cases. And obviously, in the state of Florida, cases related to abortion. So this is going to be big um, because, as we've discussed, you know, Ron DeSantis is running for president of the United States. That is not in dispute anymore. And so the question becomes, is he going to allow for prosecution of abortion cases? Uh, you don't know. Uh, but this is this is a this is a very important topic uh, that we will discuss. And of course, um, it really is going to be a privilege uh, to speak with General Wesley Clark, uh, somebody who I feel, um, you know, maybe if we had been uh, if we had come of age a little quicker, had we come of age in 2004, maybe we would have had him. Uh, and that was a man who really uh, not only has served our country well, but has always been spot on in terms of what the military industrial complex was going to do. So that should be a real treat. I um, like what you're saying, TM Martin, about floating abortion cl abortion clinics. We can't even get them to put them on federal land in red states, which would which would be very helpful, actually. This is exactly why. Well, so, that's something Joe Biden could just do. He like, could, but Joe isn't doing. Come on, man. He's not doing anything because Joe. Again, the, the truth is the people with the most money and the most power want the GOP to at least get the House in the midterms. And that will happen. The one scenario I could see is the Democrats are going to hold the Senate because there are some pretty solid senatorial candidates running against some really terrible GOP candidates. The last one I didn't get to uh, with, with John was obviously uh, Senator Warnock running against Herschel Walker in Georgia. There's basically four, five races, if you will, that are going in the Senate that could ultimately decide the margins. Uh, and we'll see. The only one that I feel very confident in is John Fetterman beating uh, New Jersey's own Dr. Oz. He has been trolling him something so glorious. But Fetterman, Fetterman is a special kind of candidate. He it's, a it's so glorious to watch. The stuff he's been doing to – and all Dr. Oz can say is just say – Oh, uh, well, yeah, Bernie Sanders and the squad and, and yeah, and socialism. And like all he has are like these, he has nothing. And Fetterman is just, I, I think it's so fun. Did you see the airplane banner that he had flying over New Jersey? No, I didn't see. That. Oh, yes. Fetterman rented one of those advertising banners from the plane and it was flying all over, I guess, some, wherever uh, Dr. Oz lives in, cause he lives in New Jersey. He doesn't, yeah, he lives, he lives in uh, Northwest Jersey. And like a friggin' palace. So yeah. Fetterman has this airplane banner flying over that says, welcome home to New Jersey. Love John. <laughs> well, listen, you could thank, you really could thank Trump for, you know, if, if Pennsylvania is finally going to get a blue Senator, this is going to be it. This is going to, this, well, this is a chance to have a, a populist blue. Yeah. Like, a, like an old school blue. And yeah. I think that that's, you know, that's the difference. And I, it's not, this isn't. And it's amazing how it only takes one, you know, like we said, you know, the thing about AOC is that her presence and her, 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 her impact is not on Capitol Hill. Her impact is in New York and it's obvious. And 
somebody like Fetterman, you know, he doesn't chase the spotlight the way that AOC does, but his presence is real. And if he wins, knock on wood, um, he's going to be very powerful and very influential. I do believe that. Well, I Um, certainly think he's not somebody to back down. Yeah, no, I agree with that. No, he, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and he did what he had to do. And, you know, the fact that he was able to beat Connor Lamb handedly, to me, says everything you need to know. And if and listen, even if Fetterman was running against an incumbent, I would still say he has a good chance. But the fact that he's running against. There aren't many circumstances where you just say that experience really matters, but. And I know we've had discussions about certain people who may run for president or run for certain offices and their lack of experience. But the fact that Dr. Oz, who is a joke, is doing this, they get what they deserve. And in this case, they're going to get it. And it couldn't happen in a better circumstance because the Democrats would have loved to have Connor Lamb in this spot, to have a real corporate Democrat running against a total in over his head buffoon. What they don't understand is that those days, um, those days are running out. I just hope they run out before, you know, we, we don't have a chance to really make a difference. Exactly, Scat. Exactly. See what he says? John Fetterman looks like that guy in prison. You don't want to drop your soap around. Well, <laughs> every once in a while, he comes up with some smart ass line. Uh, the wicked wizard. of. So guys, we're going to be, we're going live at noon on Wednesday, correct? We are live at noon on Wednesday, guys. So tune in. I'm going to be able to go out and party Wednesday night. Lucky Jen, you won't have to be held back to win this. I got to get some food, as I'm sure you do, too. There's no Uh, food in my kitchen, I can tell you that. There's no kitchen in my kitchen. I didn't. Well, are you referring to here? Oh, yeah. No, I'm not worried about that. I'm just like. Have you seen it? Did you go in and look? There's no kitchen. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, Yeah, I can see the potential. See the bricks on the wall and all that. Another brick in the wall. So my kitchen is under construction. Peter's at my house. I'm purposefully not there because I don't want to live with my kitchen under construction. Yeah, you got one of those uh, what singular uh, burners. um, You know, I mean, he has some sort of outdoor sink, Jerry rigged or something to the back. In the back, I don't know what he's got going on there. I'm just thankful that I'm here and not there because I wouldn't be doing well without a, without a functioning kitchen. I know I wouldn't be either. You know me. I got to eat. So <laughs> with that said, we appreciate yeah, you guys. You've got Mario promoting the show. Well, we do have one last thing to do before we go. So as you guys know, we really appreciate any and all support. If you are not currently a patron of Generational Change, Go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as five dollars. Five dollars. Five dollars. You know, kind of like a instead of going to Subway for the five dollar foot long, you come here, you give us five bucks. We're gonna make a real difference here locally. And I'm telling and if I make you tuna, it will be actual tuna. Mm, how about that? That's very important. <laughs> so, so keep that in mind. And uh next week we are going to have on Mo um her name is Maureen, but I can't, I got to figure out how to pronounce her last name. Well, we're going to be talking about the baby formula uh, crisis. Yes. It's still going on. 
she wrote, this is a journalist who wrote a, a very, an investigative reporting piece and followed that whole um, process of the baby formula and why we're having the problems we're having and what it's connected to. And it's not all what people think. It's really interesting. So that's why I wanted to have her on. Yes. Uh, but with that said, uh, and, and Tia Martin, we'll leave on this note. Uh, guys, if you can become a patron, we really appreciate it. $10 a month is even better. $25 a month is badass. But as you know- $25 a month gets you the shirt. Yeah, if you want the shirt, and we all know you do, make sure you become a uh, $25 patron for a generational change. And the last thing we'll mention is that, well, if people are willing to learn about pink slime, basically being the- genesis of uh, their chicken nuggets and they're still willing to eat it after the fact. And I guess people will eat just about anything because if it tastes good, uh, I, I guess that's how it is. Um, somebody, uh, one, of the, one of the people at the event tonight said to me, uh, if, if God didn't want you to eat animals, why would he make it taste so good? <laughs> Oh, Ben Ray, you ready for the next beach cleanup? You know what? When it starts, the weather starts to cool down, maybe sometime like, you know, October, November, I'll, we'll do some more. We'll do some more. Yeah. Like I'm cool with doing it. You know, we don't get huge turnouts, but um, yeah. And we also need to. It's, reach easier when, it's just easier when somebody's a candidate who's dynamic and people want to be involved in that. You know, it's one of the reasons why a lot of people like to get involved with presidential campaigns because, you know, campaigning can be fun. It can be exhilarating in many cases. And, you know, people just want to, you know, have that sort of community when there is a common cause. Double K, the only way you get bodily autonomy is if you're a man. <laughs> so. A cash app. Well, I guess we're going to have to look into that. OK, so we do have a cash app. And I just don't put it out to just beg for donations, but we do have a cash app, Peter. Right, like, that one that goes, I just don't ever put it out. Like I, I kind of feel like it's easier to get people to. All right, well, let me post it. If it, if it, if it exists or if you want to put it up, I'll put it up. If you would like, if you would like that, will that make you happy? I got to look it up. I don't even use it for this. All right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Here's our cash app for anybody interested. Go to cash app. Make sure that you let us know who you are and what you're contributing on behalf of. And if you are becoming a regular, uh, we'll add it up. You know, eventually we'll be able to get you one of our shirts. And it's <laughs> As if that's not motivation. Well, it should be. But with that said, we appreciate you guys. And I hope, we hope, you will all be here. TM, you rock, my friend. Thank, Thank you. you. So we hope you guys enjoyed. We'll see you at 12 on Wednesday with none other than General Wesley Clark. Have a good night, all. Bye, all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.